Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's mentally yours from Ellen and Welcome to Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's weekly podcast about all things mental health. I'm Ellen. And I'm Yvette. And this week we're going to be chatting to Rose McGowan. She's a feminist activist, actress, director and singer. She accused Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein of sexual assault and refers to him as the monster. She's a key figure in the Me Too movement. She's now written a book called Brave about her life, also an album called Planet Nine and stars in a TV series about her life called Citizen Rose. We're going to be chatting to her about all that and more today. Hi Rose, welcome to Mentally Yours. Hello, thank you for having me. So in your book, Brave, you talk about having cyclothymia. Would you be all right telling us a bit about what that's like and also how do you manage it? Well, it's something that I dealt with in the past and it's kind of faded out, luckily. It was something that, you know, the thing that runs in my family is our mental health issues. And my father, I believe, is an undiagnosed bipolar kind of thing, which is always super fun to live with. And for me, it was, you know, a course of medication for some years. And and then I gradually tapered off just to see what would happen. And it turns out that I was okay after. I don't know if it was a depression brought on by my circumstances, but I imagine it was. You know, so it was more circumstantial versus imbalance. Which I think makes sense given, you know... You've been through a lot of shit. I've been basically. through a lot of shit. You mentioned genetics. You think your dad might have had bipolar. How much of it do you think is down to genetics and just that's how your brain is? And how much of it do you think is down to what you were going through in the culture that you were in? I think largely it's genetics. I know there's you know a lot of women who suffer from postpartum and so that's more circumstantial or maybe like someone's going through a horrible divorce or they just have a deep depression they can't get out of. What do they say usually? It's like if you're in a depression for six months 
or more than seek help. Although six months sounds like a really bummer of it. That's a long time. And when you're depressed, you know, and you can't get off the couch and you don't see any light at the end of the tunnel, it's, um, it's very hard to manage your life that way. And it's hard to, it's like, obviously, you know, and I love that you need to exercise. You're like, I can't stand up. How am I supposed to exercise? Tell me that. But I guess the Scientologists say you're supposed to just exercise and not take any medication. Um, you grew up in a cult, children of God. How do you feel about that time now? Well, it's interesting because, you know, in my book, Brave, I talk about, I compare the cult I grew up in to the cult of Hollywood and how it affects your mind in ways you're not aware of, kind of as told through my autobiography. And I look back on it, there were a lot of positives as well as a lot of negatives. Um, And I've had an awful lot of people say, I'm so sorry for how you grew up. And I always say, I'm so sorry for how you live. Because I saw the cult like I saw the cult for what it was. And then when I came out into regular society, I was like, this is supposed to be better. You guys are fucked up and kind of socialized very differently than me. Imagine for me, it was like growing up in a really it was kind of like growing up in the woods and getting thrown out to the world at 10 and having to deal with America at that point, having grown up in Italy in the commune. And, you know, it they really prized learning. And we weren't raised with an emphasis on the outer self. And so when I came to the world, you know, out to society, I felt like that was quite cult-like in a lot of different ways and that people got kind of a watered-down version of it. So it wasn't, I felt bad for them. And I thought, oh, they don't even know, do they? They're in a cult. There's a lot of similarities, believe it or not, in how society works and how genderizing works. I don't know if genderizing is a word, but let's use it. I just didn't understand why people kind of were slagging off how I grew up so much when I just thought their lives seemed horrible to me. So I guess we can have, you know, an agreement on equal horror. The idea of growing up behind the white picket fence seems to me very treacherous. So you moved, you were in a cult, um, then you spent time on the streets, you were homeless, and then you moved to what you've called the cult of Hollywood, um, which came with its uh, huge sort of range of horrors, which you've sort of detailed in the book. Um, One of which was being in an abusive relationship with the guy that you've called William um, when you were a teenager, and you've talked there about how you developed anorexia. How on earth? Good times. (laughs) Good times. How on earth did you recover from that in Hollywood, which is obviously so focused on really skinny women? Well, it's luckily, I suffered from anorexia before I got famous. And although at one point I kind of had a relapse with it during a, the time of, you know, I call it like fame time during the, you know, kind of that onslaught, um, I went to actually Overeaters Anonymous and that helped me really greatly. Uh, it's a 12-step program and they do things for, it's not just for overweight people or people with compulsive eating disorders, it's also for bulimia and anorexia. And that was something that really saved my life. I'd had no structure kind of at all ever. And it gave me structure, but it also really helped focus me. I mean, they called me toast girl. The first year I was in there, all I would talk about is toast, eating it three times a day. That was all I could manage. And I look back on that and it's so, so sad. It's such a desperately sad illness. You know, and it's something that's so hard to recover from. And the time I relapsed with it was someone had done um, a really comprehensive website devoted to how fat I was. That was nice of them. We were actually just talking about the website because that is... It's cruel. It's, it's mad. deeply cruel. It's absolutely insane. Yeah. Would you say that you are recovered from eating disorder? Is it kind of like an end point or do you ever kind of feel 
the thought patterns coming back? No, the, the thought p- patterns really aren't there. In fact, I should work out more. Uh, <laughs> and I used to overexercise like crazy. I mean, like eight hours a day. It was so mental. And I think, you know, what that is, is just you're so afraid of the outside world. So you can't control anything. So you start controlling all the things you can, which is usually our bodies and our food. And then you start forget, like you don't, you, the dysmorphia, the body dysmorphia that comes on with that, you know, the broken lenses with which you look at yourself are really damaging and, and horrible. I mean, I was meaner to myself than anybody else could ever be. How do you feel? Well, how do you feel in control now? It's really weird. Um, I mean, I eat McDonald's. I don't count calories. I don't, I'm not focused on it. I'm kind of one of those people. I'm not a foodie. I, I do just kind of eat, unless I'm in Italy, there I'm a foodie. But after growing up in Italy and then getting sent to America in the eighties, I was like, Oh God, the food was so disgusting. Now and in brave, I talk about, it. I'm like, dear America, why is your cheese orange? And it's, it's, I think that says a lot for the country. <laughs> But in terms of everything, because I think control is so important, even when you're in Hollywood and going through all of those kind of things, you're not in control of yourself, your self-image. How do you kind of capture that? How do you reclaim it? Well, it was really hard. And there was a period, I would say like around 2010, that I got quite thin again. And that was like during the whole like Lindsay Lohan, Nicole Richie, like very skinny era. And it was like, it was a good day if I was only kind of paparazzi three times or in one car chase with them. And that I got down probably to like a size zero. I'm not sure what that is here, but very skinny. And, and thought I was normal. It wasn't anorexia, but it was definitely controlled. And I just, I'm really lucky that as my inner life grew, that faded. But it takes a lot. It takes a lot of contrary action. It takes a lot of doing the opposite of what your head tells you to do. And, you know, your brain will scream at first and for a while. I feel like overeaters shove down their emotions, bulimics throw it up, and anorexics starve it out of themselves. They, I wanted to not feel. I wanted things to not hurt. And of course, by trying to achieve that and trying to protect yourself, and I say in the book, you know, if I was just perfect enough, people would leave me alone. It doesn't really make any logical sense, but it's kind of an illogical ailment. Illnesses don't make sense. They don't really make sense. And it's such a hard one to recover from, you know. I mean, there were women in Overeaters Anonymous with me that were like, you know, in their 50s and 60s and still super anorexic. And I just thought, I was like, I can't, I can't live my life this way. I can't. You know, my brain is too agile. Like I, I just, and I was so mortified that all I was thinking about was food and body because it was so dumb also. Yeah, I think there's a lot of just, if your brain is very active in thinking a lot, it's easy for the self-talk to become quite negative and insular. Very much so. What would you say your kind of voice in your head is like now? Is it negative? Is it critical of yourself? Or are you feeling a lot more free? I'm feeling a lot more free. I definitely still suffer from some light depression at times, you know, but who wouldn't with my life kind of, especially in the last couple of years, it was a really traumatic time. And the negative stuff, like I try to replace it with the positive when it comes in my brain. It's almost like if you have scales and for every bad thought, you try to put in two good ones afterwards. So you can slowly make those scales at least, you know, hopefully on the good side, come up higher than the bad. Have you been through any kind of therapy? I am somebody who has attempted it numerous times and I seem to go like about three times and then we start getting deep and then I bail. I'll be really honest. (laughs) But writing my book was kind of amazing therapy. It was hard. It was, you know, it's a literary work. So that's hard in itself. 
but um, and crafting a book is is very difficult. It took me three years to write this. This was not a, this is my book is not about the last year and a half. It was something that kind of stretched my mind to its limits. It felt like, and also just so much when you're reliving a lot of trauma. It's right there, and it's like the ghosts of your past are everywhere around you. You go to dinner, they're still sitting there with you, and they're invisible, and they're around you. And they were, like, all around me until the book got published. So in Brave, in the book, um, you talk about your relationship with Marilyn Manson and how supportive he was after your assault. Um, I was wondering, what should partners of women who have been sexually assaulted do to help them, in your personal opinion? Yeah, um, he turned into kind of a rotten person and has said nasty things about me ever since I broke up with him. So, But he was lovely at the time. I think it's really hard, you know, it's really hard to know what to do and what to say. My boyfriend that I had, that the relationship that was kind of ending right after I was assaulted, turned to me one night and I was having, I was having screaming nightmares where I was waking up soaked in sweat and, and, and nice things like that. And he turned to me, he was like, can't you just get over it? Can you knock it off? Like, stop waking me up, basically. And that's when that ended. And I think it's just love and support and kindness. But also, you know, it was the Marilyn Manson circus. So I, looking back, I definitely ran away with the circus. I was over Hollywood. I was over being hurt. I was over, I'd been working, you know, for a lot of years. And um, not just in Hollywood before that, supporting myself really since I was like 15 on my own in the world. And I was tired. And it was easier to focus and concentrate on somebody else's dramatic life than it was to deal with my insides. So it was kind of a delayed thing, you know. I didn't want to think about it. I wanted to be who I was before the assault. I wanted to be free again. And that didn't really happen. Has he or any of your other ex-partners been in touch since all the Me Too stuff um, has come out in, in terms of being supportive? or has No, they... no. Nice guys. Yeah. Great chaps. <laughs> Yeah. No, he turned into quite a toxic human being. Which is... Which is really sad because he used to be lovely, yeah. Yeah, because you're quite understanding and quite positive in the book. Yeah, I am. Which is, you know, well done to you. I'm not that nice about my exes. Yeah, it's it's a bit of largesse on my part. Yeah, and just putting it in a book. But speaking of um, kind of talking about Me Too and writing the book, how do you deal with the fact that you have to kind of bring up your trauma, essentially, and also be confronted with sharing it very publicly. It's incredibly difficult. And anybody who says, you know, that it's for attention is out of their fucking mind. Who would want, who would want that? It's brutal. It's it's like literally feeling like you're a boxer against the ropes and they're just punching you in the head repeatedly. And seeing your rapist face everywhere, everywhere, all the time. And just, it's so much ugliness. It's, it's so rotten. And it was such a hard time. Um, but I knew that I had a greater cause. And my cause was not Me Too. I always say I am a Me Too, but I'm not Me Too. And Me Too kind of came after the articles that I'd helped set up came out. My goal, I was really curious to see if I could make people more socially conscious and to get about 10% smarter, an arbitrary number that I came up with one night. But I was like, I wonder if I can get people to be like 10% more awake. 10%. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's it. From all levels of consciousness, including my own, you know, definitely. How do you think you've changed personally and mentally since kind of opening up about this and also putting out a book about your experiences? Well, I was always fairly open with it behind the scenes. It just wasn't time to come out publicly yet because the world wasn't there yet. And ironically, Trump helped a lot with that Mm -hmm. because it was like the good guys on the left who had to learn, oh, this is what sexism is. Oh, this is what racism is. We thought we'd, it was just people complaining all the time for no reason. (laughs) 
You're like, no, it's real. It's it's uh, it's an unfortunately real thing. And the media treated me in, like in a really disrespectful, by and large, way um, for most of the last years. But I didn't really care because I had a greater purpose. And I was like, because the person on the street is who I care about. I don't give a fuck about people in media. Like, not at all. Like, could not give two fucks. How do you deal with the negativity when you're doing something obviously very positive and speaking yeah. quite openly on Twitter, but the internet is not always a nice place. No, the internet is not a nice place. It's kind of a cesspool. I just, you know, like the title of my book, I'm a really brave person and I'm a very sensitive person. So I just get knocked down and I pick myself back up. I dust myself off and I march on because I always knew that acting was not the big deal for me, that that was not my life's destiny. It was literally I'm going to game the system and I'm going to use their system to fuck them. Do you feel like you ever internalized the stuff that you read about yourself and that people are saying? Or are you able to just kind of go, it's background noise, I don't need to hear it? It's really hard to tell, you know, with negative self-tapes what's internalized from the outside and what's your lovely brain on the inside. It's very hard Um, One of the things I recommend people do is writing down, uh, which I do, is writing down a fear list and writing down a belief system list and seeing what are your beliefs that have been implanted in you by society, by its cult-like ways, or what are yours organically? What are your thoughts and feelings? And then the fear list, it kind of really helps you see a lot of times how ludicrous they are and also how that hamster wheel in your head just rolls in a circle, you know, especially at night that can get, the nights can be difficult. Do you feel fear? Because I think the title Brave makes people think "Mm, she's not scared of anything. No, that's not true at all. I I have a lot of fears, but I dislike fear heartily. Like I'm terrified of heights, so I jumped out of a plane. Brave? Brave. And I was like, okay, nailed it. Uh, Don't need to do that again. But it was in it. But it and I don't know if it totally cured me. I don't know that I would want to go bungee jumping or something again you've done it but I did it but it was literally like I resent being afraid and so I lean into it and and you know and I say in my book being brave doesn't mean you're not scared it just means you do it anyway how are you doing these days because I think the obvious thing maybe to ask well to mention is the fact that we all know um the man who you who assaulted you referred to in the book as the monster his trial's coming up later this year that's gonna be hard yeah how's gonna be pretty brutal how are you dealing with that? Are you going to get trauma, trauma therapy or are you just going to sort of see how it goes? I don't really know what to do because sometimes I feel like with therapy, I'm like, who the hell is going to be able to talk to me about my life? It's so bizarre and it's so extra and it's on such a large scale. Uh, maybe that's a stupid way of thinking, but I, I don't know who deals with such extreme. There must be somebody. I just don't know who they are. Sure. It's a huge I, thing. It's a huge thing. And I, I don't know. I, I, I dread it. It's going to be so ugly. It's going to be a really ugly time. It's going to be a really traumatic time. Do you have a personal take on um, the stuff that's coming out as well at the moment about men like R. Kelly in the music industry? Well, it's kind of the same thing as it was in Hollywood. People knew about it forever. I'd heard about R. Kelly years ago, you know, but nobody did anything because, you know, it's just girls. And if they're pretty, especially, they treat you like your face means you wore a short skirt. You deserved it. Do you feel that Hollywood or the music industry have started changing for the better? Yes. I think they're still especially Hollywood is like out of date, old fashioned and passe. And they give you a really binary, narrow look, um, a mirror to look at yourself in, you know, here's what you are as a woman, here's what you are as a man. And it's kind of the number one propaganda machine for cult-like thinking, I think. It's incredible, isn't it? Just the uh, amount of men that are still involved in the industry. You mentioned some stats in your book about 
just the amount of men that are still running the show just on the set. I think a lot of us, you know, because we don't work in the film industry, we've got no idea that actually just the cameramen, it's still all dudes, you know, the directors. I mean, people have some awareness. The writers, the editors, the sound engineer, the gaffer. You know, there are definitely women on set, but it's not remotely equal. Not at all. Mm. And that's really dangerous, I think, to the public because, you know, how women are treated behind the scenes is how you're treated on screen is how we're treated in the world. And I also think it gives men a real shit thing to look into also, like, you know, the hero or don't feel or whatever it is, all this like stupid, stupid, it's kind of like self-adulation, but unearned. It's not helpful, is it? You write some great stuff in the book about the male gaze. It's really interesting. One bit that I I laughed at was when you were saying about Adam Sandler films and how you have this kind of typical guy, Adam Sandler is like this, just this typical guy and then... But for some reason, you know, you have these incredibly beautiful women. Salma who just, Hayek, Eva yeah. Mendes, like all these who, yeah, you're like, yeah. madly mm-hmm. in love with him. and you're just Madly in love with him because who wouldn't be? Or Kevin James, you know, that comedian who's got like the hot wife or the hot girl. You're like, come on. And I'm not saying that couldn't happen. I'm just saying it doesn't really happen. Mm-hmm. But except for in Hollywood where they feel like um, I was a nerd in high school. So now you owe me, pretty girl. How do you feel about men in general because I think it'd be easy to be like screw them basically like I feel sorry for them yeah I'm I'm actually not uh I feel really bad for the box I get put in at such a young age it breaks my heart I I think a lot gets stolen from them and I think a lot of times it's like they lash out because they don't know how else to be but I also think you know there's a thing of like you're sitting in the king chair and you know it's bullshit and you know it's an illusion but you're happy and comfortable sitting there Mm. And I'm kind of like, get out of your illusion. You can have a better life free of it. Do you think that's why sometimes you get the aggressive kind of hate that you do get because you're saying you don't deserve to be sitting in the seat that you're sitting in? But they know that. Yeah. They don't like anyone... Pointing that out. It's like Emperor's New Clothes kind of thing. Yeah, but I get a lot of sexism and misogyny from women too. Mm. Absolutely. Women uh, journalists and things like that. What kind of thing? Well, like Christiane Amanpour, I went on CNN and I, I had always really respected her and she was just like virulent and nasty. And I'm like, you're talking to a rape survivor. What the hell is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? Have you no human decency? Have you no kindness? I think a lot of people kind of when you become famous, they stop thinking of you as a person in general. You're just kind of a projection or a thing that's on the screen yeah i can't say because i'm me so i don't know yeah i have no idea it's really difficult for me to know i just think that sexism is really rampant in women as well as men no that's definitely true like you can see that from a lot of the chat just on social media and on the internet in general oh my god yeah it's scary it's so boring i i want to be like i'm just so bored of you all can't you be smarter because i know the rest of the world is bored with you how can we get everyone's smarter like you've done the 10% I think once you do 10% you keep going yeah you know it doesn't mean you can't get to 100 you just have to push and you have to think differently really you know it's like I the way I raised myself was really like what would my higher self do in this situation when I had no guidance and no clue I would just imagine what my best version of me would do and I would imitate that until it came true and what can we do practically as well in terms of supporting um, emerging women in the film industries are there particular things that we can do first of all I don't know. I don't really know. um, Besides go see their movies and support them that way. Um, And boycott other movies. If if you see like all... Start noticing when you watch the credits. Start Mm -hmm. noticing the disparity. And I don't know how to support them really. Because it's... I think if the women there just revolted overall, like 
went on strike in Hollywood, all of them, like it would change it fundamentally, but they're too scared. You do say some really interesting stuff um, in your book about if we raised girls differently and stopped filling their heads with stuff about fairy tale weddings and Prince Charmings, that would really change the world. I think it ends up with that quote, you end up saying we could save a lot of lives. Do you really think a small change like that, sort of changing how we speak to young girls about fairy tales, could actually change the world? I think, you know... I don't know about you, but I also say this in my book. I've never had anybody show up in my house with a white horse. I've always been the one on the white horse. And I think, you know, if we look at our own lives, a lot of us will realize it's always been us saving us. In terms of mental health stuff, as we are the mental health podcast, how do you look after your mental health day to day? Because I know um, you said you came off medication. You're not in therapy. How are you looking after yourself? I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's... um. I try to be kind to myself, even though I have a lot of fear of the future. Um, I try to not let it immobilize me. And it's very hard, you know. I I could probably cry for years, but that's not very fun. So I try to surround myself with really good people. I have a great partner in my relationship um, who's really helped a lot. I don't like leaning on people too much because you don't want to make your stuff their stuff. But as far as just somebody with, like, radical kindness around me, that's been a huge, huge positive in my life. What do you think you've learned about yourself and your relationships in the last year? I don't really want to have a relationship with a man again. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) Can you also tell us a bit about your music? Do you find that you've got an album? uh, I found that super therapeutic. Yeah. Yeah. The whole process of making that, um, was it quite different to the whole... I imagine it was different to the whole Hollywood scene, but... Oh, very much so. Well, I I started um, recording the album, which is called Planet Nine, which will be out, I think, in August is the target. And I started doing that like simultaneous to writing my book. And I think that's what kept me sane during it. And it's just a really positive. It's almost like if you go through all the hard stuff of last year, this is your reward. And, you know, the first track on the album is called Lonely House, because that's what I've always related to is that house up on the hill by itself. You know, um, I say, are you lonely on your planet? Are you lonely on the fringe? And I talk a lot about going to another place. I invented when I was 10 called Planet Nine. And I invented my own world for myself because the world was really threatening and dangerous to me and not so kind. And so then four years ago, astronomers found Planet Nine. And that's what knocked Pluto out of the game. And I was like, oh, my God. And I used to wonder what sound frequencies would be on that planet. And so I I wound up, it's kind of like electropop, you know, wound up hooking up with these amazing French musicians, uh, electronic musicians, and but with really soulful voice and and really deep lyrics. At least I think they're deep. I think across the board we can say, you know, we might not have your level of success and fame, but definitely creating things music whether it's it art. makes such a difference yeah I mean, art therapy is huge right absolutely yeah so are you also artistic do you also you, you take photos don't you That's i right. do i'm a photographer yeah. as well and i directed a movie called dawn three years ago that was um really well received and and i'm really proud of and you can see it on YouTube. Just Google Dawn, D-A-W-N, and my name. Are you working on any, any more projects like that? Um, I have a script that I'm going to, I'm attached to as a director, but I need to take a break from Hollywood because I hate it. In general, please take a break. It sounds yeah. like very busy and you've done a lot of stuff. Yeah. also just like the emotional energy of like... But I also have to figure out how to make a living outside of it. So that's, that's also true. a bit of a conundrum for me right now, but it'll come. I'll figure it out. Maybe a therapist will help. <laughs> yeah. 
It's difficult. Do you know any? Oh, God. No. Yeah. <laughs> Belly. No, I have like, I have one, but she doesn't really understand the internet, which is why I left because I was like, that's kind of basic. Yeah, that's my whole thing. Yeah, that's so, kind of what I feel like. I'm yeah. like, who's going to understand this? It's such a bizarre, fun house of a life. Yeah, you know, it's I mean, quite it's, a niche. it's almost psychedelic. It's like at times I'm like, am I on acid? This life is so weird, and and at times really ugly, and at times really beautiful. You know, I've also had a lot of adventures and and great times, but punctuated by just a lot of extra. I think yeah, you need a therapist that would be understanding of that. But in terms of specialism, I don't know who the difficult. hell would be able to tackle this one. And difficult to search that on google all the specific stuff do you feel a need to be strong and self-sufficient yes because how, i always have been yeah how do you deal with that how do you let yourself be vulnerable if you do i do i definitely do i was on a podcast earlier today and we were talking about something and it made me cry i just like i if tears need to come out of my eyes i just let tears come out of my eyes you know and i think a lot of people are uncomfortable with that you know i'm a single woman alone in the world i am very vulnerable that's the reality of the situation. Like so many women out there and like so many people out there, you just pull up your bootstraps and march on because you literally have no other choice but to go forward. I think it's helpful to know that you are vulnerable and you can get upset because I think you have oh, this yeah. image of being very strong and like ferocious and doing all these like big powerful things. And I am, but it takes a lot out of me. Yeah. It takes an awful lot out of me. Which is why I say, please take a proper break. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that because I kind of also have like, I always feel like I have a thousand whips at my own back, you know, and that I always feel like I'm never doing enough. What makes you happy? Pasta. Good. Um, Good answer. My girlfriend, my partner. Um, I had a dream last night about my two dogs that died and they were in the dream and that made me really happy. Yeah, you love dogs. I've read that about you before. I do. Dogs are a big one. Dogs are big therapy. My two dogs that I had, I had two Bostons, and they they definitely kept me alive during my time in Hollywood. Yeah, get some more pets. That's I mean, that's, I know I'm, I'm, <laughs> they're, well, they're the best therapists ever. You know, like, they are. I'm therapist. so on the move right now. <laughs> I, I and between countries in a way that it makes it very difficult. And sure. I, I, I uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe when you've settled. Maybe when I've settled. Get a I nice did. Dog. I did rescue. He died. Another one that died, but a, a nine-year-old autistic Boston Terrier. <laughs> And they can be autistic dogs. It's very interesting, yeah. He would line his toys up according to size, color, and shape. You could pet him three times, and then he would have to go suck on his toy for half an hour to make himself feel better. But So it was like kind of taking care of not – it wasn't a normal dog relationship, but it was like taking care of something that really needed help. So that was nice. It's always good to get out of yourself. And I believe, you know, I believe volunteer work – which I've always volunteered in different forms, but I think what I did last year, the last couple of years, and even my book, I always think you should volunteer to the highest level of your abilities, and I have some pretty high levels. And so I did. You know, it's, it's literally my only sole mission is to try to make humanity better. And for that, I get raked over the coals because people don't really want to seem to be better, but I also don't care what they want. You know, people had an awful lot of thoughts for me and I have some thoughts for them. But overall, you know, like the end of my book, it's like, I know you can, I know you can be better just by being brave. And I really believe that people are a lot braver than they know and a lot braver than they give themselves credit for. And I think that's something that gets stolen really young too. And a lot of people mistakenly believe that you're just naturally born with this kind of bravery gene. Instead, I think it's fear that propels you if it doesn't you know, it's like just lean into the fear. It's like you're never not going to be scared. The world is a scary place. But and the only way really to combat that for me personally is just to kind of go big. So this is goodbye for mentally yours.
chose from mentally, 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 mentally yours, mentally yours, mentally yours. Thanks very much to Rose McGowan for chatting to us today. If you've been affected by any of the issues we've discussed today, please contact the Samaritans on 116-123 or go to the website at samaritans.org. Come and have a chat with us on Facebook. We've got a group called Mentally Yours. Also, you can find us on Twitter at MentallyYRS. Thank you very much to our producer, Juliet Nichols, and to Lucy Baker for our jingles. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.